at some point this morning, probably everyone in here, at least most of the people in here, you, you got up this morning and took a look into something that kind of looked like this. Maybe it was big, maybe it was this size, but at some point this morning, you took a look in the mirror, all right? So you got up, you took a shower, you put your clothes on, you brush your teeth, and then you looked into a mirror, and when you looked into the mirror, you more than likely made some adjustments, right? You made some changes, altered some things, took some steps necessary to change your appearance for the better, right? We, we do that. That's what we do, all right? Well, when it comes to the Bible, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he said that the Bible, the Word of God, is like a mirror. It's like a mirror, and we look into it as Christians more and more every day, and we become more and more like Jesus. We look more and more like Jesus every day. And so for the believer, for those of us who say that we follow Christ, we're disciples of Jesus, then the, the Word of God, the mirror of the Word, is, is something we, we should love, we should cherish. As we sang just a minute ago, taste and see that the Lord is good, and we look in the Word, we see it's good, and we make the adjustments necessary so we can be more and more like Jesus. But the very word that gives us this good conviction, this great way of seeing our lives so we can fulfill our purpose in life, the very same word does the opposite for those who don't love Jesus, through those who don't follow Jesus. It does the very opposite. It makes them angry. It makes them mad. It makes them hate us. And that's what we see in our text today, back in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 24, and I'm going to start us off by just reading 18 through 21, if you want to follow along with me, and then we'll pray and we'll look into this text, the mirror of God's word. So Jesus teaching his disciples the night of his crucifixion, the night before he's arrested for his crucifixion, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Let's pray. We'll look at this. Father God, we thank you for your word that does give us truth, and we can anchor ourselves to your very word, your very truth, so that we can live our lives and fulfill the purpose that you put us on this earth for. And God, I pray that today, that even though we may be uncomfortable at times, that we may not naturally desire to do what you've called us to do, God, I pray that we will submit ourselves through the spirit who resides within each believer, we will submit to his conviction, his illumination of your word. And through that, we will change and walk out of here with more eager and more empowered to do your will for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just to kind of tie today's passage into last week, verse 16 said that Jesus told his disciples that you didn't choose me. He says, I chose you and I appointed you that you should go, all right, not stay, not stick around, not huddle together, but go and to bear fruit. So he says, I need you to go out into the world and I need you to bear fruit, all right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take just a few seconds to look at the following picture 
And I want you to just to, to, to on, be honest with yourself. What emotions, what things come into your heart, into your mind as you see these images on the screen? And I could put a whole different set of images for a different group of people possibly in here, but I feel like this would be the one that would make my point best for a group of people who are mostly on the conservative side of the spectrum, right? So as you're looking at that, keep that up for a second, all right? This is our mission field, all right? This is who God has appointed us to go to love and to bear fruit. And here's what I can tell you, for most of us in this room, don't expect a lot of love in return, right? Don't expect it. Jesus said it clearly, the world, in this passage, the world will hate you just like it hated him. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Even though Jesus came on this mission of love to the world, for God so loved the world, it says clearly, he told his disciples clearly, he was hated, he will, they will be hated as well. And so as the church, as the body of Christ, Peter describes the church as a chosen, again, that word chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And if you're like me, if you learned this verse many years ago, possibly in the King James Version like I did, it uses the phrase a peculiar people. We're a peculiar people. So by nature, we won't fit into this world. We won't fit in. And so we're going to a people who naturally, they're not going to like us, and naturally, we probably are not going to like them. All right? They're going to despise us, and we're going to have really struggle in ourselves to love the mission field we've been called to live in. And most of us, unless you're the rare exception to this rule, you do not want to be this guy in this picture, right? You don't want to be the one who got the ticket and sat in the wrong section of the bleachers, right? You don't want to be the guy who everybody's around looking at like, why is he so different? Why is he here, right? And, and that's a way of thinking about how God has put us into this world. We're going to stand out. We're going to be different than the world. We're going to be noticed when we're living for Jesus. And if all we want to do is be loved and respected by the world, we're not going to be able to fulfill our mission. Many of us are guilty of that. We're guilty because nobody likes to be hated on. Nobody enjoys being rejected. We like to be accepted. And in fact, this is, I think, where so much of theological liberalism came from because nobody wants to be rejected, especially in, stick with me for a second, in, in higher education particularly. When you go into higher education, you don't want to stand out like a sore thumb because you looked at a stupid, crazy, out of touch with reality, believing um, silly stuff because you as an academic are saying you believe in God and the Bible. You're going to be rejected. And so it was easier for so many people generations to go, ago to begin to deny the truth of this word and begin to teach a watered-down scripture rather than to face the persecution that would come with it and be labeled stupid, silly, or uneducated. So we compromise and we fit in. And, you know, Satan loves this. Satan loves superficial religion. People who name the name of God, perhaps, but in reality, they don't have any depths or any conviction or any passion behind the truth of what they say they believe. 
And, and the way you identify this many times is you go to churches where they just don't preach the Bible. They don't. You will never hear most liberal churches don't teach verse by verse through the Bible. They don't. They don't want to, to tell you the entire counsel of God because too much they'll come across where they'll be stumped and they won't have an explanation for it. Or if they do, they'll be jumping through hoops that seem so ridiculous. So they don't preach the Bible. And then even some people who believe the Bible, they avoid sin at all costs. They don't want to tell anybody they're wrong. And, and they mask this, I hide this under the fact that, you know, oh, we want to be a caring church for everyone. We want everybody to be, feel like they can come and be part of this church. But the problem is, are you really loving people if you let them believe a lie and be uh, c- confused by the fact that God sent Jesus to the world because sin existed in the world and we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God? And also, I've noticed through time that these churches may talk a lot about God, but they don't talk much about Jesus. And it's a steady diet of self-help sermons. Let me give you five or six, ten things to make your life work better, but it's not rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit. I experienced this firsthand at a really a church that I really was surprised that I experienced this at. Some years ago, I went to a conference, and it was a pastor's conference of all things. And every session that I went to in this, in this um, pastor's conference, not one session started with prayer, ended with prayer, or had any prayer whatsoever during any of the talks. It was all practical how-to stuff for a bunch of pastors. And it was interesting, I struck up a little conversation with a guy who was on staff at the host church, and he said, you know, I feel like we've just programmed the Holy Spirit right out of this place. And so he recognized the fact that his very own church that he was working for was compromising for one reason or another. Satan loves the world to accept God, and we'll talk more about that in a second. So Jesus has sent us as ambassadors to this world, and he makes it clear in these verses that we should expect to be hated. Expect to be mocked. Expect to be snubbed. It's going to happen because we're not going to be liked. But the trick is, how in the world do we love people who we naturally would not like? How do we do that? A few weeks ago, I was uh, going out for a run. Uh, Jerry Edson and I, who usually sits right here, his family's right here, and I are training for a half marathon, and, and we usually run together. But he needed to up his pace because he's a lot younger and faster than me. And so he gave me a 10-minute head start, and we were going to run a route that we had run the previous week together. And so I took off, I got there early and and took off 10 minutes ahead of time. And I'm trying to remember the route, and we go up through Lake Douglas and through Douglas Hills and, and through that area. But I couldn't remember exactly the streets that we had turned on, but I had the map on my phone. And so as I was running through Douglas Hills, and there's one area right as you go up the hill there in Douglas Hills, it's really dark. There's not really very many street lamps there. And I'm looking at my phone trying to see, did we turn on that street or was it the next street I turned on? I can't remember. We went down to Colossac and came back, and there was one we didn't go down. So I was looking at this phone as I was running. No joke, I realize I'm in somebody's yard as I'm running down the street. And I'm not just like a foot or two in somebody's yard. I'm in the middle of their yard, so much in, seriously, so much in the middle of their yard that I was disoriented of where I was. I looked up, I had to stop because it wasn't really even ground at that time. I was so fixated on my phone and the route that I totally got off course and lost my bearings and was in the middle of maybe your yard. I don't know, all right? Very crazy, but what a, what a, what a perfect illustration of the way that we live our lives in this world. We as Christians, we go out into this world we take our eyes off Jesus, and what happens? We get way off course. And so people that we're called to love, 
We can't love because our eyes are not on Jesus. Our eyes are upon them and our eyes are upon the sin that they're committing. And in the name of maybe righteous anger, we explode with this emotion that we don't, we know it's not from God. And yet we try to justify it, but we're way off course. We keep our eyes on Jesus. I know that's really simplistic, but we must keep our eyes upon Jesus. And Jesus says he called us out of this world. He called us out of this world. And one thing that helps me to remember how to love people as I rehearse the gospel each day to myself is to remember just a really simple illustration that I saw many, many years ago that says that if, if there's this incredibly large and deep chasm between us and God, and we, if we know our Bibles, we know that's the truth. Holy God, this huge chasm, and us are on this side, humanity. And in fact, sometimes you'll see that illustration used for the gospel, this big chasm that exists. Think of it as miles wide. And then think of, let's pick somebody who's a great uh, guy who can jump a long way. This guy, I don't know if you follow track at all, but Matthew Bowling, who goes to the University of Georgia, he jumped uh, last year 27 feet, all right? That's, that's crazy long. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine him going up to this chasm, to the edge of this chasm, taking a big run and jumping 27 feet, all right? Very impressive, but I'm sorry. Phew, he's at the bottom of the canyon, right? He ain't going to make it. And then you got me, and I take a big run, and I get two and a half feet, right? I end up the same place Matthew Bowling ends up. We both end up at the bottom together. And if we remind ourselves of that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I, and I read this even this morning in my quiet time. We're in Luke chapter 7, and in verse 47, a person forgiven little shows little love. A person forgiven little. And Jesus isn't saying you've been forgiven a little because you're a pretty good person. He's making a point in that illustration, that parable, that if those who think they have very little to be forgiven can show very little love. So when we recognize and we realize that we're a sinner, and while our righteousness may get us a, get us a few feet further than somebody else, we still end up short of the glory of God. And so the natural thing for us as Christians in this world that hates us, as in all of life, is to, rather than going and bearing fruit, as Jesus said, we hunker down, just like the disciples did after Jesus ascended back into heaven, and we wait, Jesus, come on, come back. We're going to hunker down here together and wait for you. And that's exactly what the disciples did, and Jesus had to split them up and get them out of there and get them spreading to the world that they were called to reach, to go. And I think our version of hunkering down and waiting for Jesus is we can very easily be in this culture of avoiding face-to-face -face criticism, face-to-face -face confrontation, face-to-face -face disagreement. And we hide behind our computer screens, our phones, and we engage in this war against our culture with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are equally, e equally as intimidated by this world that we live in and that we can sit around and throw shots from a distance. But the reality is we do very little of, of, of training ourselves to how to confront and deal with and love people where they're at. And I think in this farewell discourse, Jesus is preparing his disciples for very much that. They are going out into a world that's going to hate them much more and are able to act upon that hate much more than the world that we live in today. So how in the world can we do this? It isn't easy. Jesus said, in fact, when he sent his disciples out on a mission, he said, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out there as lambs in the midst of wolves, all right? That analogy may be lost on us today because we are not shepherds, but lambs are, uh, the wolves are the natural enemies of the sheep, all right? The lambs 
are naturally going to be prey to the wolves. And so there's going to be receptive people in the world. There's going to be people, and I think one person who I've been talking with the gospel and, and, and he's really just seemed to put his faith in Christ, he's watching us today, and it's awesome. There are people out there who need the gospel. They need to experience the love of Jesus Christ. But we can expect that they're going to be scattered among these hostile challengers that exist out there in the world. So how can we live in this world in the way that God's told us to live, go out in that environment? Well, if we go back several weeks to the beginning of this farewell address that Jesus began to give, we talked about this extensively in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 20, where Jesus said, you and me and I and you. You and me, I and you. And I, just, I, I love just reminding us of our union in Christ, who we are in Christ, because that is the reality that changes us. Christ in us provides unbelievable power to live in this world. And so as Christians, the picture here is we are so united with Christ, not only are we going to share in the blessing of that relationship, but we're going to also experience the hatred of the world that Jesus experienced, this hatred for God. So picture it. You're so connected with God through this union with Christ that the world treats you the exact same way that they treated Jesus. And Jesus gives us the power through this union with Christ to do what he told us to do in Matthew chapter 4 in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's the foundation, our union with Christ, keeping our eyes upon Jesus. We know that we're connected to him. In that, we can go out into a world that hates us. But I think, let's go back to verse 17. There's a very practical way that Jesus has said over and over again that we can find help in this as well. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And we've talked about love because Jesus, is, I think this is the third time he's mentioned this in this farewell address. And so this idea that Jesus promised to build his church and the disciples living in a world that hates them and, and despises the message when they gather together with their fellow Christians, this is going to be their lifeline to live in this world, that we need one another. We need each other's support. We need each other's care. And in America, we don't notice it as much. I'm reading stories this past week of just persecution that exists throughout the world toward Christianity and Christians in Iraq who have basically shrunk down to hardly just a handful, not very many churches. I think there's only seven evangelical churches in the entire country now. And the believers, they travel miles. And they don't just travel miles so they can sit and be entertained. They travel miles so they can say, brothers and sisters in Christ, I need you. Let me tell you what's going on in my job, the persecution I'm facing. Pray for me. Help me. You know, lift me up. And that's the prayers that they lift up for one another is help them to be strong and be a witness for Christ, but yet use wisdom and discretion in how they do it so they don't, they're not martyred when they still have a great mission to do. But if it comes to that, many of them are more than ready for that. And so they remind each other, and they keep each other accountable. They help each other understand the need for accountability. And, and you know, I think that's something that's sorely missing in our churches. And we put you together in K-groups for this reason, so that you will have community and that commitment and accountability will be part of that. But I agree with Tim Keller. He says, everyone says they want community and friendship. But mention accountability or commitment to people, and they'll run the other way. You see, we love the idea of accountability until we need to be held accountable, right? 
We love the idea of commitment until we're expected to be at our K group, but yet we have three other things that are higher priority. And somebody in our group goes, hey, man, come on, where you been, man? We, we need you there. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm too busy, right? So we don't like that. What, who are they to tell me not to be there, right? Like, I got stuff to do, right? That's the way we react naturally. So you see, we love community and accountability until somebody actually does that to us or says it or speaks to us. And what do we do? We begin to make up our list of how righteous we are and how uh, unable they are to make their argument because of their unrighteousness or their failures or making excuses for what we do, right? We, we come up with all these reasons, but we just don't accept the fact that I need it. I need to be part of community. Because why? Because if you're just living as a marginal, walk kind of fence, be accepted by everyone type of Christian, accountability is not that important to you. But if you're living for Jesus, if you're putting it on the line, if you're on your job sharing Christ, if you're reaching out to people, then you need help. You're like, hey, help me. I, my neighbor asked me this great question. I don't have an answer for it. Or my coworker, he, he asked me about God's existence, and he, he had some things about the Bible that he was saying that I just don't know how to answer that. Do you, can you help me out there? And you're like, oh, yeah, let me help you. Let me show you some stuff that, here that I've learned. You see, we need accountability. We need commitment if we're living for Jesus in this world. We need to be encouraged by other people. We need the body of Christ. And so we need to think more on the terms of, hey, we're like the Christians in Iraq. While we may not be physically being persecuted, we know that Jesus promised us it's there and exists, and it's going to be more and more so as we live our lives. And so we're desperately in need of accountability. And look back at verse 17 again one more time. Jesus commands love, all right? I know we think of love as an emotion, but Jesus commands love because God's love is a decision to act for the benefit of someone else, no matter how we feel about them, right? He acted in love no matter how he felt. While we were enemies of God, God sent Jesus. God acted in love and sent Jesus, even though the world would hate him, despise him, use him, kill him, mock him, all these things. God acted in love. And so we choose to love one another. We choose to make our community of believers our priority. We choose to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of community, for the sake of love. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Let's stop there. The world, let's kind of define what world is. It's this mass of unbelievers who are indifferent or hostile toward God and his people. It's this mass of unbelievers who are indifferent or hostile toward God and his people. So it's a system that rejects God for selfishness and for personal pleasure. And so when we as believers, we're walking with God, when we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, when the, our union with Christ is paramount in our life, then we shine this uncomfortable light on the sin, and that earns the hatred of the unbelieving world. And so you're hated because you're connected to Jesus, and he was hated supremely. And so as, as the church, as we increase in our intimacy, our love, and our obedience, and our fruitfulness, we're going to have the same effect on the world that our master Jesus had on it, which was we're going to appear strange, we're going to be rejected, we're going to be treated poorly. And so there should be a point at which each of us, in our love and obedience to Jesus, it makes us so much like him that we will experience what Jesus himself experienced. And how, has that happened for you? 
Have you found yourself in that situation where your love and obedience has gotten so strong for Christ that people begin to actually treat you like they did Jesus? For those who have a lot of friends, let's say, I hate the term, but on the left side of culture, all right, what's the temptation? The temptation is just to go along, not to really say anything, just, you know, let them do their thing, and I'm just going to be a good example to them, and I'm going to be, you know, a loving person. But we know the temptation there is soon as we start to really make choices that are holy and right, we're going to get less invites than we did before because there's just something uncomfortable about a person who may not even be like, you're wrong, but a person who is desiring to live correctly and rightly and be honest and, and have, be a people of integrity, and it's going to make people feel uncomfortable around us. I mean, if you work for somebody who's dishonest and they're stealing things and you just don't do those things, you don't have to say anything. Just your honesty will shine a bright light upon them. They'll think, oh, man, I, I, don't let him see you take that thing because that guy, you know, he's all against that. He's a Christian or something, you know. And so it convicts people. And so joining in eases their conscience. And, you know, in the Old Testament, the, the prophets walked into situations, and I'm not saying we're prophets, and I'm not saying you need to go blast people, but at the same time, they expected harsh treatment, and they expected to be unpopular. And while we're not to be obnoxious, hate and rage and revenge have no place in our witness, but also compromise, tolerance, and just being able to fit in and, and be accepted, that has no place. And then for those who are on the right side of the spectrum, I think this, like I said before, is probably the trickier place to be. You see, the Pharisees were as about as right as you could get during Jesus' time. These guys had all the moral influence and character that one could see from the obvious standpoint of them living their lives in the world. Yet, even though they were moral conservative people, they did not have a relationship with God. They went through the motions. They pretended they were hypocrites. And so, it's how do we relate to the people on that side who are moral good allies, right? These are people who, like, we, we like. And, and I would say, you know, do you get more excited about sharing the latest political meme with those people than you do about sharing what Jesus is teaching you in your quiet time? Are you more excited about talking politics than talking about Jesus with them? And so the danger on the right is, wow, it's, it's easy to fit in. It's easy to be a part of it. But even with those who are morally upright but lack a serious relationship with Jesus, you start talking about Jesus, they're going to take off and run the other way. And so worldliness really is the exact opposite of godliness. And you can have people on the left who are worldly, and you can have people on the right who are worldly. But as Christ followers, we must learn how to operate in the world, but not be of the world, not take on the values of either the right or the left. We live for God's glory, not for pleasure, not for selfishness. And we proclaim the gospel and live our lives as clear evidence of the gospel's transforming power. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. So a servant, Jesus is implying that they're going to carry on this ministry, and we know they do. The book of Acts, you're going to carry on my ministry, Jesus says, after I go. 
And so you're not better than, I'm teaching you all this stuff. I'm training you as my disciples, so don't expect anything different. And they're about to understand what seriously can happen as disciples that very next day, when Jesus, that night when Jesus is arrested, and that next day as he's crucified. They're going to see it in full force. And so we understand that the master teaches us, and we're not greater than the master. Verse 20, the second half of verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus, he spoke the word of God. I, I just need to remind us of this every week. Jesus was constantly saying, Father, what's next? What do you have for me? I'm only going to do the things that you want me to do, God. And it's an example for us to follow. It says, instead of reading our quiet time, as I talked about last week, check, done it. We say, God, what, what do you want from me today? How can I pray gospel-centered prayers for those I'm going to go to and bear fruit around? Help me to be wise. Help me to be full of the Spirit. Help me to have the Word of Christ fill me up so I can be full of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs versus anger, wrath, and treating people with disdain. So we prepare ourselves, and we don't expect anything different. So the question isn't, Will I suffer? But when, I, when will I suffer? How will I suffer? Think of it like a military kind of illustration for a second. Can you imagine somebody signing up for the military and they get deployed to combat? They go out and all of a sudden they confront the enemy and they're like, why are they shooting at me, right? I mean, why are they hating me? Like, why are they so angry at me? Why are they doing that? It's like, well, because you're a soldier. But many professing Christians never experience any hatred from the world because they don't serve Jesus. So the world is not going to hate them. And it's kind of like, you know, somebody going out to play basketball, and you may have the uniform on that says Jesus. But if you're, like, helping the other team, you're not trying, you're just throwing the game and letting the other team win, they're not going to mind you at all, right? That's six on four. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good deal for them. And so if you're not getting any resistance for your faith, then you need to look at your faith and say, am I really following Jesus? Am I being outspoken for Jesus? Am I being bold for Jesus? Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. And then if you skip down in verse 23, Jesus continues the salt. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Whoever hates me hates my father also. You know, there's this, again, disconnect in the world that the world is cool with an unholy God. You see it, like the words programs uh, on TV, the movies, the music. How many times do you hear people say, I want to I thank God for this award. I want to give him praise. You hear that quite often, maybe not as much as you used to, but you used to hear it all the time, and you still hear it some. Rarely do you ever hear, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for this award right here, right? You don't hear that because the world is pretty comfortable with an unholy God, a God that has no moral standards, a, a God that never, ever confronts your sin, a God never, that never points out the reason why you need a Savior. So that's okay. But in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders who claimed to know God, who rejected Jesus, Jesus flat out told them, you don't know God. You don't know him. Jesus told them, if you knew God, you would accept me because he is God. And that made them really, really angry. They thought they knew God. They thought because they had the law and the prophets and more laws, 
that they were in touch with God, but they wouldn't know God if he walked up and stood before them, and they didn't, did they? So if you want to know what God is like, what God values, look at Jesus and his life. Examine his life fully. And if you're here as a seeker today, examine Christ's life fully because our culture sometimes will throw out and say, well, Jesus, man, he's like the most loving, cool kind of dude existed, man. He's like a kind of hippie kind of dude and just hung out and he was just really cool with everybody. I'm sorry, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. You read the Gospels. Read them. Don't just cherry pick certain verses, pull it out of context. Yes, Jesus was a friend of sinners, but Jesus always said, go and sin no more, right? right? Stop it, right? right? That you're, what you're doing is not of God. It's evil. And so Jesus called out sin all the time. Just remember that much of the sin he called out was on the right side of the equation because they knew, that the, left, the side on the left knew they needed a, a, a Savior. They, the ones that Jesus met with, they saw God and they're like, I know I messed up. I need something. The ones on the right, well, I'm pretty good, right? And so, verse 21 again, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. So, in our culture, if you're convinced that a holy God does not exist, how can you have a moral compass, for real? How can, how can you know what's right and what's wrong? You can't. And so I think as Christians, it's helpful for us to remember that the world is going to act the way the world acts because they're alienated from God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. I think Pastor Matt Carter says as well, he says, whenever we're shocked by the world's behavior, it's because we've forgotten the world's condition. The world acting like the world is not shocking, and frankly, that in itself is not persecution. It's a good thought. The world does what the world does. It doesn't mean, as Christians, we don't do everything we can to restrain culture, hold culture back. In fact, I think that's one of the primary jobs of the church is to preach truth and hold culture back from being as bad as it can be, right? Because we know left to ourselves, apart from God, we can do some pretty rotten things. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're capable of anything, and oftentimes it looks moral and righteous, in our own eyes, but it's so dangerous. And so Jesus exposes it, and he exposes people's rebellion and selfishness against God. That's exactly where we get to in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, that's the world, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And then skip down. We looked at verse 23 already. Skip down to 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So Jesus here, if you look at verse 22, you might think, well, that's puzzling. I don't understand how there was no sin before Jesus came. But Jesus isn't saying that if he didn't come, they would continue to live in sinless perfection. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying, the rival of Jesus made sin known. That is, it made it, to, it, it like, official. Now you have no excuse whatsoever. Now that God is among you, Jesus has come, there's no excuse. So by coming into the world, Jesus exposes the central and most controlling of all sins, which is a rejection of God, a rejection of his gracious revelation 
So he exposes their flat-out rebellion against God, especially the ones on the right. Your rebellion against God. You love the darkness, Jesus would say, more than the light. Why? Because your deeds are evil. They loved the darkness. And so Jesus exposed that. Jesus was like a bright light to the world, to the nation of Israel. He exposed them for the reality, but they loved to hide in their sin. And he exposed the ugliness, particularly that was in their hearts. And so all these things that um, look pretty good to the religious leaders of the day and the, the, all the, the things they went through and the religious formalities they did, Jesus said, let me shine onto your heart and show you, that's not for God, that's not for him, because if it was for him, you would accept me, you would know me. So Jesus' life and his words rebuked and condemned human sin. And Jesus uncovered the inner corruption and the hypocrisy of people. And how did they respond? They reacted violently. They, this, they acted violently to Jesus because they hated it. Because he stru- stripped away every excuse and he ex- exposed their true selfishness and their true rebellion against God. That's why they hated Jesus. He came and he exposed sin. Let's go back to the mirror illustration for a second. True story many years ago, right when inland Africa first began to open up to the gospel, some missionaries went to an area, and a lady who was actually the, the chief of a village nearby, his wife, came to the missionary's village, and on the tree hung a mirror. And she went up, and she looked at the mirror, and she was utterly shocked. She had never seen a mirror before. She would never looked into a mirror before. And so she was shocked, and she came to the missionary, and she said, why is this horrible person in this tree looking at me? And the missionary responded, it's it's not the tree. It's not the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. And the woman, she just could not believe it until she actually got the mirror off the tree and she held it in her hand and began to look at it. And then she realized that she was looking at her reflection. And in her reflection, she saw all the tribal markings that had been tattooed on her face. She saw the hardness of her face. And she said to the missionary, she said, sir, I want to buy that mirror. And the missionary at first, he didn't want to sell it, but she kept on persisting and persisting. So finally, he sold her the mirror. And she said, I will never make faces, allow it to make faces at me again. And she threw the mirror on the ground after she purchased it, and she stomped it, and she broke it. And I think it's a great example of how the Word operates and how as Christians we operate. The world does not want the mirror of the God, God's word held up in front of them. It doesn't want the reflection of God's character, godliness, holiness reflected in our lives. And that's going to be so offensive when we hold that up. But we need to remember that the reason we're targets is because we're following Jesus, the one who was targeted more than anything we can imagine. So let's represent God to the society. Yes, with grace and love but not backing down from the reason people need a Savior in the first place is that they've sinned and they're separated from a holy God. And Jesus came to solve that problem. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will help us as we go out into this world that we will remember that we truly are encircled by wolves, a culture of people that despise our message because they despise you. And God, may we stay close to you, our shepherd. 
may you help us as, as helpless sheeps in the, sheep in this culture that we'll stay close to you, Jesus, the shepherd of our souls. And may we, like you did on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That we don't, we don't preach a gospel in an arrogant fashion, but we preach a gospel that understands that the reason people react such is because they're covering up their guilty conscience. They're covering up the rage that's inside of them. And it's, it makes your word and you and, and us targets because it's convicting to our souls. And God, I pray you'll help us to be wise in this world. And God, I pray even this morning as we take communion in just a minute, God, that this will be a time to reflect upon our union with you. And may we truly look at our lives and see, are we compromising? Do we have a, a, a moralism that pretty much pushes you out of the equation because we're good people? And God, I pray that you'll help us to see that we need you. We need to keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name we pray.